0: You're listening to Drinking on the Job, D O T J. I'm your host, John Coyle. Drinking on the Job is a toast to the culture of food, wine, and all things fermented. We'll be talking with winemakers, musicians, artists, late night bartenders, scoundrels, and more. It's time to grab a glass before it's last call. Dana Cowan is an award winning influencer in the food world, best known for her two decades as the editor in chief of Food and Wine. Let's tell some stories. I could not be happier to have a food icon on the show today. Dana Cowan is here. She's the American editor. She was uh, two decades. She was the editor-in-chief of Food and Wine. Um, and now she's here. So thank you for jumping on, uh, on DOTJ podcast. Totally appreciate it. I'm
1: so happy to be here. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Um, so, it's so it's so crazy. So we, we have to go, go into a little bit of the backstory. We have to figure out how you got into the uh, food and wine business. Originally, you were in fashion. So just the jump from fashion to food and wine is really interesting, right?
1: I would say um, I was in magazines, and I've been in magazines for, I mean, boy, 40 years almost, wow. all magazines. And my first magazine was, indeed, Vogue magazine. So that is technically fashion, mm-hmm. and I was on the same floor as all the fashion girls. And you could tell going up in the elevator at Conde Nast which ones we going to get off at – our floor. But I was not in the fashion department. I was in features, and it was the greatest, the single greatest first job that someone who loves writing and editorial and the arts could ever have. Because I worked for this brilliant man named Leo Lerman, mm-hmm. and our purview was every single thing in the art world. But so that would be photography, design, wine, travel, food, the whole thing, right. all in the what we call the front of the book, mostly the mm. the section of shorter pieces. And then we would also do the profiles in the well, so these big, big shoots with the stars, up-and-coming stars of the day. And I got to go on shoots with Irving Penn, and, um, you know, it was a great first job. So, so that's where I started. And then the arc to Food and Wine is really following the trail of I love to write, I love stories, I love the people behind them, I was interested in Vogue at the people behind the stories, then I went to House and Garden. It was the same thing except through the lens of houses, like right. who's the decorator, who's the homeowner, although honestly so often we didn't get to find out who the homeowner we didn't get to share who the homeowner was. Um, they wanted their names, you know, sort mm-hmm. of anonymous. And sometimes that was a really great thing since what we discovered was great design can lead to great divorce. you know, <laughs> Or the,
0: oh, great robberies. <laughs> well,
1: I suppose. Uh, yeah. We didn't uh, see that quite uh, as much as like, <laughs> yeah, the, the couple who put this um, house together, the house is now on the market because they've split. Mm-hmm. And then we went – I went from house and garden uh, – we folded that magazine. Connie Nast did, and um, I went to Mademoiselle, which is really not a magazine for me because it was really set states and boys, right. not the areas that I care very much about. Right. And um, and I ended up at Food and Wine, all because I was a magazine editor, not because I had this great love of food
0: or wine. So, because of your editing skills, the ability to be able to find the story, the reason, and the color behind something, is what what got you got you there. So, in the Right before the food and wine, so as you move into food and wine, um, is there a story that you still save that's in, the, like, your dresser drawer or put away in a book? You're like, that was my favorite.
1: The favorite story that I ever created, um, never the two of them, when I was at House and Garden, never saw the light of day. I think that's why they're in my drawer. <laughs>
0: okay,
1: um, One of them was on uh, robots, and it was – so it was around 1990, and I was like, the ro- there's a robot revolution coming, and robots are going to do everything for us. And so I found all these amazing prototypes of robots from, um, you know, ones that would clean your house to ones that did far more elaborate things. It was an amazing photo shoot that never saw the light of day. And then the other one was um, I was interested in the creativity of twins – and the creativity of twins as it was applied essentially to design of right. some kind. And so I found an amazing array of twins. We did an extraordinary shoot of of the twins and the work. Never saw the light of the day. So those are the two. It's like the two that got away.
0: It's crazy because we're talking about AI, which is here now. And uh, people now can have their eggs fertilized in, in a freezer and sit down and have dinner like a, a good friend Chad is doing. Because he has this ready to go, and I said to him, so let me get this straight. So you and your wife are going to go, hey, let's go have a great dinner and decide when we're going to have our children, and they got to pick the sex. So do you like, oh, let's go to Lakuku Cuckoo and decide the day? <laughs> that seems so weird, like a sci-fi to me, right? I couldn't agree more. I was just interested in,
1: you know, what is what's unique to the individual, mm-hmm. like what's shared, what's wow. environmental, and what is like what is the true nature of creativity, and where does that come from? If your genetics are essentially the same, your environment is essentially the same, and then, you know, do you do things that are completely different, or do hmm. you do things that are the same? And um, these were twins who were doing the same thing. They were both writers, or they are both wow. photographers, they were both designers, and yeah, I just and never forgot that story. The other thing that's funny that's in my drawer is the um, the pitch magazine that I put together for Food & Wine saying, I don't know a whole lot about food, but I really do know about magazines, and I really do have a vision for this brand. And just, you know, every once in a while, I take it out to chuckle because it is pretty much the path that I followed once I got there and followed it for, you know, a couple of decades.
0: So it's kind of like you've it was the... Precursor to the vision board. It was, exactly.
1: It Uh, was (laughs) precisely uh, back in the day when there was no Pinterest and, you know, there was no vision board. There was like a very ugly black vinyl, (laughs) you know, um, whatever. Um, And then with sleeves, a binder with sleeves. Uh, And I just put the tear sheets in the sleeves. And so you can actually turn the binder and see the sleeves and see the fake magazine.
0: Speaking (laughs) of the AI thing, I just read that Joe Rogan, uh, feels like he's interviewed everybody and anybody he wants to interview. So he's has an AI bot being made of Steve Jobs. He's going to mm. bring back to life, wow. essentially, and interview him posthumously. What's happening in the tech world? Okay, that's, that's how bored Joe Rogan, or how high Joe Rogan is.
1: <laughs> one, either one,
0: either one. Yeah.
1: That is nuts.
0: Well, that's, that's pretty crazy, right? Um, so we, we discussed when you walked in how many friends we've had uh, – we have in common. I mean, I've had Ray Isle and Asimov and Maria Sinsky, who I love as a friend. And I there's nobody better to eat with in New York City than Maria Sinsky. She is a chef and her love of food and, and knowing exactly – wait a minute, wait. That's paddlefish. That's not <laughs> caviar. <laughs> she is so great. Those are those – not. where are those truffles from? I mean, is she, Maria is, is
1: a – Completely phenomenal dining mm-hmm. companion mm-hmm. for just that reason, because you're eating something and you're like, oh, that's delicious. And she she can dissect it right. to, you know, the temperature was cooked at, the spices. The, and I love that. I mean, there's always so much insight, as well as just pure gluttony. I mean, we just yeah, eat it's so, gluttonous. right eat so well, well together and yeah. drink so well yeah. together.
0: I have my quick Maria Sinski story. She comes in, we always dine together, and she's like, it's truffle season. I want to find some truffles. I said, okay. Um, we were down in Tribeca. She said, they must have me at Laconda. So we went to Laconda Verde. They're packed. She, I said, so I'm going up front. I know a lot of people I'm trying to f- work my – she goes, let me take this one. She goes up to the hostess and the manager. She goes, I want to sit down. I want to order a very expensive bottle of wine, truffles, and be out of here in like an hour. They're like, <laughs> they're like, you got seated. Right great. this way.
1: <laughs> That's
0: my favorite ski story. Yeah. I think uh, we can
1: all take a lesson from that. But then we have yeah. to order the bottle of expensive yeah, wine. Yeah, she hands me the, the wine this, this which is great. Like I said, not a
0: hard job to do. No. Uh, not a hard job to do. Um, but so um, the food and wine, I guess we have to talk a lot about, about being there and uh, some of the uh, the trends that you've covered. Um, uh, you you say that writing and editing, um, it, it's the biggest. Uh, thing you've noticed is the change that slowly happens in food and wine. Um, So since you were you did two decades at food and wine what's the biggest change you have seen in the arc of those 20 years, now 20 plus years sorry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what's the biggest change?
1: I think there are so many changes I mean that arc has a lot of notches in it. Mm-hmm. Um, When I got to food and wine in 1994, 1995, you know, is the dawn of the chef era, right? So we didn't even know from chefs. I mean, they were all, you know, back in the kitchen. You didn't see them. And they were all French. And the only people who really counted were at the front of the house, the the person who greeted you. The maitre d' knew everybody. They made the experience fantastic. Mm -hmm. And the change from that being the case to chefs being front and center— Um, You know, that was like the beginning of the arc Mm -hmm. and the change from, let's say, French and very Eurocentric to um, a much, much, much greater diversity of styles and who can cook, whose cooking do we want to see, what are the stories that they're telling. I feel like that's the largest um, change that I've seen that I certainly applaud.
0: Mm -hmm. You know, the things that
1: are really exciting for me in terms of going out today uh, are – to learn about cultures and cuisines that I know very little about. And there's so much more access today than there was, whatever, 25 years ago. All right, yeah. And um, it makes, to me, every time I sit down, I'm excited for what I'm going to taste, but I'm more excited for what I'm going to learn. I, Ironically, I'm not much of a student. Like, I didn't particularly like school. So I like being able to study in this very experiential way to learn something about, you know— um, the region, something about the people, something about the conflict, something about, you know, the way that um, history has treated and changed the the food and the people.
0: Yeah, it's, uh, I, I think Anthony de Bourdain did an amazing job of doing the deep dive on the culture behind the food and or how overexploited some oh. ethnicities are, and we forget what they brought to us as you're sitting there eating the best tamale you've ever had or the best pho that you've ever had. And uh, and he kind of introduced us to these people and, and their culture, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, Tony was an extraordinary humanitarian in his way, right? He was a very complicated figure in some ways, but um, but really exciting to just tra- sort of travel with him by video.
0: Right. Did you ever meet him?
1: Yes. Uh, I got to spend little bits of time with him. We assigned him a couple of really fun stories at Food & Wine. Uh, Kate Crater, who was an editor at Food & Wine now at Bloomberg, is really a genius in assigning and finding stories and just knowing what different writers and chefs cared about. And she knew Tony, and she's like, he loves to draw. I'm like, oh, really? So, Tony Bourdain drew stories for us, and wow. um, he drew travel stories for us. His his most significant moments in food that he remembered, but he drew them, and uh, so I got to know him a little bit through that, a little bit through events. Um, you know, I I'm very uh, I don't I don't have a potty mouth. Tony, of course, did, mm-hmm. and. One of my favorite Tony memories is being at uh, South Beach Wine and Food, and I had to introduce him. And I was really excited to do this. And I said, and I'm just so fucking happy <laughs> to introduce Tony Bourdain. And he was like, yes! You know, he just like, he clearly felt he'd broken you through to day. me. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, he was always, always authentically Tony to yeah.
0: me. It seemed. Uh, he was uh, one of, did you see Roadrunner? the um the movie, I did you know, the dock on him I thought yeah. it was really uh uh pretty spectacular um nobody's filled that void yet I know there's always people you know I thought Carlton McCoy was going to do something with CNN for a little bit or the they the other version of CNN that already tanked uh, I think they're but he's such uh he's unique and it's just you don't duplicate something like that you
1: and I don't think you really try right, right? um in that notion of we were talking about the arc of you know culinary history and Tony was at a very particular place and time and is tra- transformative. But I think the transformation continues. So there's a lot of reasons you wouldn't have right. another Tony Bourdain because you really are looking for somebody else to do something else to find another way at this topic that we love.
0: What I, I totally respected about him also was—we could turn this into the yeah, Tony show, but, to but just—he um, showed you the raw and the dark side of being a chef. He's like, look, you're going to cut your hand. You're going to work long hours. You're not going to make any fucking money. You're not going to be Bobby Flay.
1: He's right about that, yeah. And,
0: and you have to appreciate that because these chefs are so like—they were rock stars. And he was the one going, no, not so fast. That's like less than 1%. That's like you can get into per- like the NBA kind of percentages uh, to be the next that chef. Um, and so he did an amazing job of like being real. Yeah. And, and I mean, hopefully a lot of kids didn't go to culinary school after they heard that.
1: One of my favorite chefs that I got to know through Food & Wine is Jacques Pepin. Uh, and Jacques school, yeah. is a great teacher, great mentor, and Every time that I would be with him and a group of young chefs would happen more than you would think, Um, the first thing he would say is you have to do this because you love it. I mean, this is a way of life. There's there's purpose and meaning in it. And for any of you who are here because you want to cook to be famous, you know, I suggest he didn't say pack your knives and go. But essentially, this isn't the route for you because it's so much hard work. And the likelihood of breaking through and being a star is very small. Like, don't do it for that.
0: Yeah, I had Mark Forgione on, who I love. And Mark uh, is very real. And when his restaurant was going under, Forgione, Forge at the time, um, he was going on Sunday nights to take out the trash because he couldn't afford to hire a porter.
1: I mean that's was, the story with all of them, right? I mean right. chefs are there to fix the walk-in, what happened to the air conditioning, The real um, chefs. fill yeah. in the fill in yeah. for
0: the dishwasher. It's yeah, it's a crazy life. Yeah. Um, so what is what is the biggest story you felt like your jaw dropped. When you covered Food and Wine, like oh my god, I can't believe I've never seen anything like this. I'm gonna take I'm gonna take a guess at what it is, <laughs> but sure. I, but Thanks. I'll, 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 I'll I, I'm guessing the whole um, Batali s- scandal. Um, but is there something else that you're like I can't believe this happened in the culinary world or the Food and Wine world when I was could when I was writing or had to farm out these stories to a uh, a journalist that I was working with.
1: I mean, f- Food and Wine. Wasn't necessarily at the forefront of like breaking news right. journalism, right. Um, and the Mario Batali uh, like horror happened or came to light after I left Food and Wine. I'm grateful for that. I think the thing that made my jaw drop that um, you know we Ray Isle would have covered in some way is mm. the counterfeiting of wine, oh, right? Yeah, and um, you know that was. So fascinating to me that someone would actually, you know, want to find their way into wine society by faking wine. And then just make people from like Jances – I mean, Jances Robinson having like fake bottles. You're like, no, that really happened. I (laughs) I mean – and then how many fake bottles did I have? Like I – one of my greatest wine, you know, so-called wine memories was when I – Early days at Food and & Wine, and I was at Guy Savoir in Paris, mm-hmm. and they – at the end of the night, they pulled out a very, very special bottle. And I'm like, this is port from 1762. And I was like, oh, my yeah. gosh. That's amazing. And, you know, they don't pour you a glass. They pour you, like, three drips. Yeah. And, like, well, that makes sense because right. it's from 1762. Sure. And then there's this whole meditation on, like, what was going on in America yeah. in 1762 and what does this make you think that you can actually taste something that has been alive for that long. And then, you know, all the scandals and wine, I'm like, really? Uh, I was probably just having,
0: you know. 77 Taylor. Exactly. <laughs> you know what I mean?
1: I wouldn't have known the difference. <laughs> yeah. and, and yeah. I But for the longest time I had, that is this like crowning memory that I had entered this rarefied place where I am deserving right. of the three drops I from seventeen sixty two. From
0: an eye drop a pink, pink. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, what's crazy to me is also the quiet complicity of everybody involved here. Mm. Right. Nobody wants to really be called up, but like you weren't a little bit just dis- saying, like what's going on here? Like, oh, can I have the, all the bottles of those old DRC that we opened up, and the, or the, or the first growth from Bordeaux from the '60s and the pre-Phylloxera? Do you mind if I just collect? Them? Oh, I just keep them for collectors' items. Like, there's not a little bit of flag there. Yeah, right. right. And, and, and then, like, the amount of people who bought wine at these auctions or have it, mm-hmm. and now the, you know that you could say, hey, we can come and test the bottles. We can look at the seals. We can do a uh, we can do a carbon run on it, and we can tell you if it's the real bottle. But you already spent like. <laughs> $10,000 in that bottle. And you don't want to know. Do you
1: really want to know? I don't want to right. know. I mean, yeah.
0: I'd still rather have it as a showpiece.
1: It's, I mean, so, yeah, just that was so fascinating to yeah. me. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah that's, it, it is it's totally true. And I think Rudy, I forget his last name, is now out of jail. <gasps> is he really? I think he's out of jail because he's on Instagram and partying like a rock star, it looks like again. So I'm like, wow. Look at.
1: Look There's that thing guy. called confirmation bias, right? Uh, like you assume it's true. So it is true, and you just don't ask, right. which gets us into so much trouble and so many other ways. Right. But in in wine, apparently, also.
0: But could you imagine sitting at a table and you're doing, I don't know, you know, champagne from before the before the first war or something, and it's these old old houses, and somebody having the balls enough to at the table and go, I'm I'm doubting this. It's like you couldn't do it. You have to. It's protocol. This is wonderful. And and the truth is, what they did put in the bottle, it wasn't Plonk. You know, it was usually a, a blend of some back vintages and, like, still really great, but not fetching ten, twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000 a bottle.
1: I do think clearly Rudy has a talent for blending. And, you know, he, like, oh, yeah. he has many talents. Yeah. It's right. just, like, forgery was among them. Right. I mean, it was funny, just the notion of confirmation bias, because I was at a Grant Hotel seeing a women and wine weekend, and there was a wine tasting blind, and there was— um, two reds, uh, two rosés. We compared the rosés first, which was French, which was American. I actually am very proud of myself. The whole room, like, was wrong and I was right, but just, I mean, out of luck, I imagine. But then the two reds, it was just fascinating to hear people because of the Descriptions of the two roses, one French, one American. The assumption is you're looking at Reds, Mm -hmm. one French, one American. Mm -hmm. And people put so many words to the Reds and why and how they were so different from each other. And you know, and this one is really tannic, but this one is so round. And lo and behold, they were the same wine. Wow. And everyone was like, oh but you know, just check please. <laughs> just because the assumption yeah. was, well, obviously we're not gonna taste the same wines, but it's such a good reminder yeah. to not
0: overthink it. And um Yeah, you also there's some bottle of variation, but also I think That's blind what someone tasting. asked, they're like yeah.
1: Couldn't it be bottle variation? She's like, mm, not really. <laughs> yeah. I
0: mean, bottle variation would have to be huge enough where people to go, that's impossible, right? But if it's that close, yeah, it's your palate. But, you know, I think blind tasting is the best way to taste wine. Um, as an importer, you know, you know, I'll taste 100 wines some weeks, and I re- prefer to taste them blind. I don't want to know the price, and I just want to, like, assess quality. Um, it's hard to do. And that's why people. I bet it's really hard to uh, do. It's very hard to do. But that's why people like if I if I'm in Italy and I'm France and I'm somebody's cellar and they're I'm tasting so I have to divorce myself from my surroundings because how many times you're on vacation and you're in Greece and you're drinking Ratsina or you're drinking something you're like this is the best thing I've ever drunk then you get back home and you're like ooh what is
1: this <laughs> did I
0: really buy this yeah <laughs> so uh, there's so much for that um, what um, what do you think of the uh, the recent the the Michelin star guide just came out uh, I thought it was really interesting. Some of it feels like got like I don't know how relevant it is. I think it's still relevant. But how relevant is the question? Because I see like um, Alcoro, uh get two Michelin stars. And then I see Steve Cuzo in the New York Post trash it. And I think that is way too big of a chasm not for somebody to kind of address. Of course, people have different palettes and stuff. But there's like things about a two-star Michelin restaurant that has to be about decor Service it has to fit these things here, and I, I thought I was just like I. This is crazy, and made me think: how relevant is Michelin anymore, particularly to the U.S.? It's more Eurocentric for sure, um, and it means something of so much more prestige in Europe. Does, what's your take on the Michelin star thing?
1: I'm not enamored of mm-hmm. the Michelin in the in the U.S. Right, um, that's partly because I'm. Um, I'm less interested in well, rankings. I think are really yeah. really difficult rankings of any kind. Star system is very difficult. If if we take for a premise what I care about in food, mm-hmm. um, and also like what I built a, a career on, which is the people, um, the the context, and how delicious something is. Right. I'm less. Personally concerned with a lot of the things that Michelin ranks and cares about, mm. like you just said, that you know the decor, like it is the. I mean, I want the bathroom to be clean. Let's be clear, <laughs> but but um, yeah. so when I look at Michelin in the U.S., usually I feel like they've missed it. Yeah, you know, um, and so it's not something that I pay attention to. I think the people who do pay attention to it, though, are those who you know want to. Um, live at the very highest of the high end and they want someone to vet for them. Sure. And for someone, I mean, certainly for the restaurants themselves, it's great because, sure. you know, everybody loves everybody loves a pot on the back and, you know, a plaque. Um, and there's a recognition of quality. I just think that I'm personally more interested in quality at, at every level. Right. And so I don't look to them to how I would like to eat, but I do look to see what ends up in there, you know, in the guide, just out of curiosity and to
0: debate it. Yeah, I agree. It's it's almost like a car wreck on the side of the road. I want to take a peek over, but I don't really care. It's more curiosity because there is stuff that's rated that I've had much better meals at other places. And like yourself, I've have ate and drank in some of the finest restaurants around. It's really true. And then when
1: you yeah, when you see. Places that you've eaten at and you're like, that just like there is no right. way. Yeah. Did they actually yeah. eat there? You know, I just it can be mind boggling. And then of course that means that pulls the entire list into question for me. Yeah.
0: yeah. It, it it does. Mm-hmm. And I think it's more about you said it's there's an elite there's an elite diner that wants things vetted for them because I have friends who are saying look, I've I've one of my, you know, things I want to check off my my uh List is like, I want to go to X amount of Michelin star rated restaurants just so I could say I've done it. I'm like, okay. Yeah. I That's, mean, one of the cool. interesting
1: things about that, the checklist, I we were talking about, you know, changes. Um, I remember, you know, vividly that notion of there are restaurants and places that I need to experience if I want to consider myself like of this world, right? Having come from outside of it. Right. And there was such a, a checklist. And now I feel like mm, the checklist still exists, but the thing that I look forward to and that interests me is how do we move from the checklist to an, to a true experience? Because in theory, the reason you have the checklist is so you can have the experience of being in the place right, um, and having the food. But when it's just for the checklist and just to tell other people, I feel like, you're missing the opportunity to, be, to really be present and enjoy it and realize in the same way that that Ritzina is fantastic yeah. on the beach, you know, in a shack. Like, that experience is four stars, yeah. you know.
0: Also, I think just for, to me, sharing a meal with people you care about your family, people you love, and you're breaking bread with them and drinking wine, that experience, that oxytocin, that hormone release of, like, it makes you so happy is it can't just be defined by a set of great linen, great asalto glasses, great, you know, um, that's really not, I think, what real pleasurable dining is about, you know.
1: Right. And I feel like mm, I want to believe that that's the future of dining, that we're moving away from, the checklist uh, towards more depth and experience
0: okay uh, could take one second just to talk about the champagne we're drinking so we're drinking champagne because I was magic to the guests I'm drinking just to <gasps> say cheers to you mm, cheers. and thank you for being on the podcast mm. we'll get a little clears and we're drinking a more set. Uh, family estate uh, this venue was planted in 1955 all grown crew Blanc de Blanc wow. uh, three years on the Lees it's just uh, beautiful beautiful champagne it's beautiful uh, I think it matches my uh, beautiful guest today <laughs> so thank you for <laughs> thank, thank you. you for jumping on have fun and I love champagne mm. so um, so from here I, you know I food in general I, I look at you know, you consult with uh, f- some fast food companies. Everyone comes to you to consult on— We call them fast casual, but yes. Fast casual, sorry. <laughs> yes, it's not Kentucky—not Popeye's. Definitely not Popeye's McDonald's. isn't coming. Hey, we need yeah. a new recipe. <laughs> recipe, what do you got? Um, but uh, talking about where we're going with food, like I, I read Dan Barber's book. I love the book The Third Plate. And there's a lot of talk about nutritional density. Um, but and I And it's a fantastic book, which I highly recommend anyone reads. But the problem is if you go to his restaurant, I think the tasting menu is three twenty five um up at Barn. it might be three forty five and and what 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 I'm getting at is I think like we have to figure out how to put great nutritionally dense food on people's plate that can afford this food, and how do we do that? Is that one of the things we should be trying to figure out now
1: what well, th- it's important on so many levels I just think Putting Dan Barber, you know, the Stone Barns experience mm. in the same sentence as how do we provide nutritionally dense food mm. is a little bit of an error. Yeah, okay. Right. Like yeah. Dan is trying to create delicious, nutritionally dense um, produce, like ingredients. Yeah.
0: Yep. Lost grains, et cetera. Um,
1: yes. And— Precisely. So, Row Seven, mm-hmm. which is his company, where he is, you know, breeding honey nut squash, right. and um, you know, has a green project. That's where I think you see Dan's potentially greatest impact on the largest number of people, and the importance of changing what we grow in order yes. to have what we grow be more nutritionally dense, and then for people to be interested and open their minds to, like, to Kernza or to something that is, um, you know, not one of the four meats, not one of the three fishes, not one of the, you know, not corn-based, not soy-based. So um, I think that his pioneering work is incredibly compelling. Um, I think when we are talking about the future of food, the nutritionally dense is important, uh, waste, I would put, you know, perhaps yeah. even above nutritionally mm-hmm. dense, the amount of waste from farms, uh, less from restaurants than we think, but from home kitchens, that can change the world, right? right? If we can feed people, we we are growing a lot. We plow under a lot. Now we're beginning to rescue a lot. Now we're beginning to um, have an appreciation of Imperfect food, imperfect produce—all um, extremely uh, important. So, I feel like mm, let's look at how we're going to feed the world. Right, very important to do. Another aspect of that is the ways in which um, we, the U.S., has has gone in to developing nations and changed their food supply. And um, changed agriculture in ways that are problematic. So they end up being
0: net importers. So exporting Roundup and uh, instead, of, you know, all the the bad chemicals that you can get the highest yields, but destroying the soil with no nutritional density. Basically. I mean, it's just right. like
1: what you're saying just gives me goosebumps. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's just it's so destructive, mm. and the way that we've destroyed the. You know, the soil of the planet and the way that that affects climate and climate change and the ability for us to feed ourselves. And anyway, so there's a lot – there's so much work being done that's really exciting. Um, And I think that that is also very important. You know, like how do we – you know, if you're in Ghana, how do you really approach reclaiming the original Ghanaian foodways as opposed to what's been imposed by seeds that, you know, you can only use once. I mean, the way that our agricultural system has affected the ability for, you know, a farmer to save seeds or, you know, pay them forward or, you know, grow something without chemicals, that's been really dangerous to the food of the future. So, um, yeah, gigantic topic.
0: And so... I mean, I I I am happy when I see places like Sweet Greens, and you know that. You, I mean, there's been a huge cultural shift. I mean, Vegan Slut just opened in Brooklyn. I mean, S- Slutty Vegan, Slutty yeah. Vegan, sorry, yeah. Vegan Slut. Okay, sorry.
1: (laughs) The person who goes might be a vegan slut, but the place is called Slutty Vegan.
0: (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. But, like, I haven't tried it, but there's lines around the block. That makes me happy. There used to be a place around the office, around the corner of my office, Mulberry and Vine. Oh, yeah. And it was really, like, healthy. And people are, yeah, good luck, because there's, like, a subway down the street, and nobody's going to go there. And there was a line, like, around the corner. And there's an awakening that's happened, which I'm I'm very happy to see.
1: Right. So I worked with um, Dig Food Group for a couple of years. Uh, after food and wine, and before the pandemic, and I loved them, and still do. So the relationship between Dig, which is a fast casual, so you you know you go at the start of the line, and you pick your grain, and then you pick your green, and then you pick your protein. Um, we sourced from. Uh, incredible farmers and many of the farms were minority-owned or LGBTQ, mm. Very really difficult, um, you know, populations that don't have a lot of access to land. And the way that DIG paid the farmers, so we paid them in advance rather than oh, nice. saying like, we're going to order, we're going to pay you for a month and then at the end of the summer, you'll, you know, so that the farmers had the money at the get-go. So I feel like places like DIG can really reshape very cool. um, Can reshape agriculture and put something delicious in the bowl. It was a phenomenal project to work on. And then post-pandemic, they're back to, to growing and then bringing this attitude of, you know, really great farm, really great food at um, a bowl price. And I just, Adam Eskin, big shout out to him.
0: Oh, that's very cool. So I was going to say, I mean, people reach out. Yeah, I mean, you mentor and have been mentoring uh a large group of women and chefs and um, is like, what are some of the exciting things you're working on now? And then we got to talk about your podcast and, and my, your zine and my zine, your zine. Yeah, I brought my, yes, I brought yeah, my zine yeah, yeah, to show you. Yeah.
1: Um, sorry, the um, mentoring. Yeah. I love mentoring. Um, it's a icky word, I suppose, but I do do a lot of coaching and advising and the people that I work with are often, um, creatives or um, founders of companies or just people who are trying to figure out what to do next because after I left Food & Wine, like, I really wanted to go and I took a job that didn't work out for me. And then I went through the process of, like, what actually do I want to do? So anyone going on that journey, like, they have my full heart. So much empathy. Uh, So right now I'm working with a group called Forested in Ethiopia, and they're getting honey from... Forest communities, and providing it to consumer packaged good companies like Lush, and they're oh. they're proving out the concept of creating um, a carbon neutral supply chain for CPG companies. So, consumer packaged goods are trying to improve their sustainability right like their supply chain sustainability and one way to do it is to look at the ingredients in their own products and so instead of you know looking to buy carbon credits let's say right they can buy ingredients that are carbon neutral or that are good for the planet and so um forested has taken that as a model and working with the founder is so exciting Because what she's doing is revolutionary, and it's also really hard. You know, doing it in Ethiopia is very difficult because there's a civil war. Sure, yeah. And and then working with forest communities, like, has its own, um, you know, logistical challenges, right, to get things from the forest, to get the honey, then process the honey, and then get it, you know, in a container to— another destination.
0: My wife, if she had one mission in life, it would be to, like, destroy 90% of the packaging that anything comes in. Because half the time, like, you're trying to use a pair of scissors on this plastic thing, and you're like... It, why is it so difficult to get into this packaging? Where I need a sawzall to, <laughs> to, to open this package and just drive? You can hear her screaming, "This fucking packaging!" <laughs> like why? You know, I'm like okay, yeah. But it's a, uh, that's a very cool project to be part of.
1: Yeah, packaging is definitely uh, yeah. something. Someone just um, DM me yesterday saying, "Hey, I want all your advice on packaging because obviously packaging such an issue." And I know people, you know, who can help with packaging. It's not my it's not my specialty. But looking at um, unpacked, you know, things that you buy in bulk and can replace, I think that has so much opportunity for us
0: mm-hmm. yeah. well, I, and, yeah. the planet. And, and the planet. And the planet, for sure. What's your thoughts on sushi? I love sushi, mm. and it's expensive, and it should be, by the way. Cheap sushi, don't, don't even go near it. But every time I eat sushi, I sometimes think, like, how long is this going to last? How, how long is this sustainable? Um,
1: I think that's a really great question and nuanced. Um, I think the the thing that I'm focused on right now is China, and they're fishing in uh, you know in the waters with these trawlers that are trawling 365 days a year and basically right. vacuuming the ocean.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and it's such a short term grab. Because if those populations can't repopulate, then you've literally lost the fish population. So sushi, you know, um, I love it. I, I love it too. I uh, have had beautiful, extraordinary sushi meals. In fact, Marie and I have gone to Japan together. Yeah. Marie Sinsky, who we were talking about earlier, have gone to Japan together twice and had just exquisite, exquisite yeah. Yeah. meals. Um, but I do think it's a you know it's a luxury and should be seen as such because. It, yeah. The fishing, the overfishing, the availability of fish is... you know they are
0: making sushi in a lab now? Sure. Um, so making everything in a I, lab. I, and- I, I mean, they'll take in some original cells, so they're not fishing, overfishing the oceans. That's their answer. I know uh, a friend of mine who writes tech was said he's actually been part of it, and it's it's good. It's, it, of course, so cost prohibitive right now in its infancy, but... Um, Maybe that's the answer. I mean, there are also,
1: you know, sushis that are, um, you know, farmed fish, which is, I Mm. mean, its own challenge. But um, there's sushi that are invasive species, like lionfish. There's sushi that are vegetable, vegetarian, um, vegan. Mm -hmm. So the notion is, does sushi have to be, like, you know, fish and warm vinegar rice, or like, what is it? Is the like, does what does the form factor tell you? Right. And how can you, you know, embrace the form factor but change, like, what the top is? And I think yeah. that's very interesting. That's cool.
0: So tell me about your podcast.
1: I started a podcast. In your zine? Yeah. <laughs> yes. yes. I started the podcast uh, about five years ago. Leaving food and wine was very exciting because I wanted to do something completely different. And I didn't think at the moment like of the things I was giving up because I was so excited about what I was going to be exploring instead. But the thing that I gave up was being able to tell stories, other people's stories, and have them reach a wider audience than right. just like a dinner party. Yep. And so the podcast was the first thing that I thought of. And Going from traditional media, uh, you know, where there's a publisher and consumer marketing and, <clears throat> you know, all kinds of people to help you produce this thing and distribute this thing, one of the beautiful attributes of the world right now is you can control All of it. So podcasting, I mean, you can control this completely. I um, hooked up with Heritage Radio Network and have a show on Heritage. Um, And so I had the benefit of being able to have my vision but then have somebody else do the engineering and the distribution piece of it. And uh, when I was thinking about, like, what stories did I want to tell? What stories did I feel like I left behind? What type of change did I want to see? I really thought about, you know, well— I did a list. I love lists. And I wrote a list of all the people that I wanted to talk to. And 98 of them, 98% of them were women.
0: It's right. so like, well,
1: obviously, that's my podcast. sure. And so it came to me more like, who do I want to talk to rather than, I'm for women. I want to write about women or talk about women or talk to women. And um, the origin beyond telling their stories was, as I said, I was at a bit of a transition. And so my first year— only had people on the podcast who did jobs that I thought I might want to do. That's a cool so, premise, though. Um, a book agent. Like, do I want to be an agent? I mean, people said, like, Danny you should be an right. agent. You're a talent scout. You know, I had her on like, well, I don't want to do that. Um, A book editor, like, oh, you know, I've been a magazine editor. Maybe I could be a book editor. Let me see that. And so it was just the year of like like, going through the different professions um, and getting these women's amazing stories and hopefully inspiring the people who are listening. Like maybe they were trying to figure out what to do and maybe these women's stories would speak to them. Um, And then every year since then, it's evolved really reflecting – I think something of the zeitgeist and something of what appeals to me or what interests me at the time. And so right now, a lot of the podcasts that I'm doing are focused on sustainability. Uh, You know, I interviewed um, Brie Warner, who has um, a seaweed company in Maine, like really interested in sustainability and seaweed, as an example, or Rose McAdoo, who I'm completely obsessed with, who is a pastry chef who's also... um, A guide in Antarctica, and now just moved to Alaska, and she does um, cakes that bring to everybody's attention climate change and the climate disasters happening in these regions that she knows and loves so well. So, um, so it's been a really wonderful way to just not feel stuck in one thing. It's I just keep sort of moving what I believe is forward, but I mean, it's forward for me, just different different topics of interest. And I did a zine that we launched in June because I really wanted to take some of those stories that from really the first couple of years, which, was, which were the um, figuring out how to live in this new world years and put them together with food, wine, and travel. I, I'd never seen it done before, Um, and it's quite related to all the coaching and the mentoring that I do, you know, inspiring people to have confidence in themselves and to, you know, lean on mantras or other people or other people's stories to help them get where they need to go. So I put together a Speaking Broadly zine um, that you can get on my website, which is also called like speaking-broadway.com. Broadly.com. And um, it's been phenomenal. I've been traveling for the last two months, really, in and out of New York, um, D.C., Philly, Detroit, Chicago, um, all to, like, share the stories of the zine. Oh, I love it. Yeah.
0: Well, you know, we are now at the part of the show where uh, God loves your zine, your podcast, <laughs> and uh, wants some uh, cooking tips. And— he said, "Dana, you, you've been such an, an amazing example of, of humanity mm. and helping great. humanity. So we're going to give you one last day on the planet to eat what you want, drink something, have a great piece of music as you float off into the ether. Mm. So, what are you eating? What are you drinking?"
1: I mean, I'm definitely eating fried chicken. You know, okay. I just I love I love fried chicken. I will try all fried chickens on any menu. You know, and I have a very particular type of fried chicken that I like. I like it extremely juicy, I guess everybody does, oh. but I like it really crispy and where the skin like there's extra skin that's just been crisped. Okay. And so I just mm, I would really just love the satisfaction of crunching my way through juicy fried <laughs> okay. chicken.
0: I love it. You're making and, me hungry. Yeah. Okay.
1: And um and I would definitely be drinking champagne because, you know, you're eating this thing that's somewhat, you know, Fatty, crunchy, salty, and you just need some, like, scrubbing bubbles, like really tiny, persistent, beautiful champagne bubbles. Um, And then the music, uh, you know, it would probably be, like, the anthem of um, my—it's probably the anthem of my marriage. My husband loves the Beatles. Okay. And we listen to the Beatles more than any two people should listen to music.
0: Favorite song? Um The Exit Song? What would it be?
1: Oh yeah, I don't know. Here comes the sun. <laughs> oh um, come on, that's beautiful. Yeah. And yeah. uh I that would be a, a really great way to go. Okay. Maybe a little caviar with the fried chicken. Yeah, I <laughs> <Okay.
0: don't know. laughs> it's your last day, we'll give you another course. We we'll give you some add-ons, exactly. we we'll give you supplements. D- Would you like a supplement before you pass? Yeah,
1: and then I also yeah. want um vanilla ice cream and chocolate sauce in a, like a really good profiterole because there's so many bad profiteroles. So I just like want a really like delicious fluffy profiterole with vanilla ice cream and um chocolate sauce on top.
0: Well, that's it. Dana, thank you so much for being on Drinking on the Job podcast. Um and uh, let's give some info for people to jump on your website and order your zine, etc. So give us that info.
1: Great. Thanks. Um so the website is speaking little hyphen. I don't know what a little hyphen's called, but little hyphen broadly.com. And it's just right there. I made a, for the longest time, I was like I need to develop a website that has everything. Like no I don't. <laughs> I just, you know, simplicity. I, simplicity yeah. is king yeah. or queen. Okay. Thanks
0: for having me. pleasure yeah. to talk to you. Great to have you on. Thank you.
1: <laughs>
0: Thanks again for listening. Don't forget to check us out at dotjpodcast.com. Until then, I'll see you at the bar.